You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Thank you for joining me. And to be accurate, I should not be saying good day. I should be saying good evening because it's a rare evening recording of the podcast. This, I was going to say, almost never happens. I don't think this has ever happened. Normally, I record these during the day. I eke out a little time or I do it in the morning. And here it is. It's evening. I just sent everyone else upstairs. And I snuck down to the basement with, to be true to the aesthetic of the podcast, a cup of coffee and my favorite mug. I just didn't think I could come to the podcast mic without my coffee. Even if I don't drink it. I know if I drink it, I'm going to be paying the price until midnight or one. But... It just felt like I couldn't do it without coffee. So here we are together, me, you, my coffee mug, and some thoughts. I want to share some thoughts that I shared this morning at the bridge. And the reason I wanted to do them this evening is because they were fresh in my mind and the recording did not happen this morning. It was an interesting Sunday morning. It was like, uh, it was like the end times. It was uh, great and terrible in a couple of different ways. Things should have worked and didn't. And in the end, it was ended up being a great Sunday morning, but it just was a little bit off in the way of uh, technical things. One of those things was a lack of recording. So I thought, well, we'll just do it kind of podcast style because it was fresh in my mind. And here are you and here am I and here's my coffee mug. So let's go. Every time I teach, I like to think a little bit about what we learn, what we want to feel, and what we want to do. And so if you have a piece of paper and a pencil, if you have those items anywhere in your home, go grab them because you're going to be wanting to write some things down. This is what I want you to learn today is that there is a season following the rapture that you may never have thought of before. You're like, I haven't even thought about the rapture in a while. Well, we're going to. We're going to talk about that today. And there's a season that follows it that you may not have given a whole lot of thought. That's what I want you to learn. What I want you to feel is how your life today connects to that season. Like right now, the things you do, how it connects to the age to come. And what I want you to do is I want you to start to make the adjustments now that will pay dividends then. And it's what I call millennium practice. We'll talk about that again in a minute. But there are things you can do that can prepare for your life and the age to come. Now, why am I thinking about all this? It's kind of been a big week for our country. Uh, Once again, we transferred power from one presidential administration to another. I do not think it is an overstatement to say that it has been a bumpy ride for everybody. And if you think now that things are going to settle down, well, God bless you for your optimism. If there is any change in an administration or the leadership of a country or the leadership of a church or a homeowners association or a PTA or a work team, there's always a lot of watching that goes on. Is this leader going to be better than the last one? Because no matter who the last one was, some people didn't like him. And no matter who the new one is, some people anticipate not liking them. And there are probably a lot of good reasons on both sides, because at the presidential level, at the corporate level, at the church level, even at the family level, human leadership is deeply flawed. So much has been written about good leadership, you'd think we would have figured it out by now. And certainly there are leaders that are better than others, but nobody leaves a leadership role without wounding somebody. And the result of that is, when it comes to leadership and thoughts about who's in charge, 
we often have a vacancy of hope, this idea of there should be hope there in my heart for what might be, but I do not have it. The world has been under perfect leadership one time in its existence. It lasted about three chapters. At the creation of the world, God walked with man in close proximity and in heart connection, but man exercised his free will and he rebelled against that perfect leadership. And since then, the most well-meaning attempts to lead men and women have been flawed by the same sin nature that got us into this mess that we're in. Having rejected a perfect leader and then rejecting his son, we have dealt with thousands of years of flawed leaders. And because we've suffered under such feeble leadership for so long, it's easy to think of the earth and this current situation as disposable. Let's just pave the whole mess and start over. And tonight, I want to talk to you about the return to perfect leadership over the earth. The Bible teaches that there is a time coming when the earth is restored to a better-than-Eden-like state. We'll sit under the leadership of Jesus, who is both God and a real man, and sits on the throne in Jerusalem. You're saying better than Eden. What do you mean by that? What makes it better than Eden? We don't just tend the garden. We help him rule and reign. As I watched the events of the inauguration on Wednesday, my heart began to yearn for perfect leadership. Leadership that I didn't have to be suspect of. Leadership that I didn't have to question the motives of. Leadership that I knew cared for my heart. You and I will sit under perfect leadership again, and it is a tragedy of the church that we don't talk about it more. We need to talk about it more because it is the end game of all life. The Chiefs are playing. I mean, literally, as I'm recording this, the Chiefs are playing. They were up by quite a bit when I came downstairs. But what if they had changed the rules at the beginning of the game and said, you know, we're not going to keep score. We find that it demoralizes people. We're just going to eliminate the end zones. And, you know, if you run off the field through the end zone, you just get the ball at the other end of the field and you keep running because the joy is in the journey. No, the joy is not in the journey. The joy for the Chiefs is Patrick Mahomes throwing a pass to the wide receiver and the guy getting into the end zone. It is the end game to score touchdowns. Take away the end game, it's boring. Might as well watch golf. Much of the disillusionment within the church is because we have not laid out the biblical scenario for the end game. We don't need to speak less about the end of the age in the coming millennial kingdom. We need to speak more about it. Because when we speak of it, we have hope that we could never find on this side of Jesus' return. I remember referencing the return of Jesus one time, preaching on a Sunday morning, and somebody coming to me and said, I've been in this church for 15 years and I've never heard anyone preach about the return of Jesus. And all I could think of was, why on earth did you stay in this church for 15 years? I don't mean to discredit the church. I'm saying, what motivated you to hang out here? Was the singing that good? Was the preaching that good? Good music and good preaching are not enough reason to follow Jesus. We follow him because we are forerunners, and one day he will rule the world. So wise people say, rule me now, Lord. What is our end game? It is the millennial kingdom of Jesus. It is our number one goal. It is the why behind everything that we do. Jesus lived like a man who knew he was coming back. 
and would rule the earth. And he modeled that life for his disciples. There's a passage in Matthew where he's teaching them how to pray. They're unsure how to do it. And so he's giving them language for what the father wanted to hear. And he said, here, guys, pray this one. And in Matthew 6.10, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I can imagine the disciples writing that down in their journals. But did they even know what it means? He's not saying, have your way in my life. He's saying, prophesy the return of Jesus and the rule of a godly king. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're to have a prayer life like Jesus gave vision for, then we are regularly calling for his return and the kingdom of God in full demonstration on the earth. In the book of Revelation, John saw something in the way of the future, and it marked him. And it gives us a little peek into this kingdom that Jesus was referring to. Revelation 24, John starts and says, Then I saw thrones. I can imagine people asking him, what do you, what do you mean thrones? I don't know, I, just, I saw thrones. That's what I saw. And seating on, seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And he tells us two things about their future. He goes on to say, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then in verse 6, he tells us, they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. He's like, they came back from the dead and they were priests of God. And they reigned for a thousand years. Why do we focus on this coming kingdom of Jesus? Because it gives us perspective. Life is bigger than our days in these broken bodies. It pulls us into the storyline of God rather than the storylines that we write for ourselves, which are always less epic than we thought they were going to be. Mike Bickley used to tell us of speaking at a conference and the worship was phenomenal, and the people were responding, and the host of the conference looked over at Mike and said, this is as good as it gets. And in his typical Mike Bickleism way, Mike said, I hope not. This is good, but this is limited to a small room, and it's not going to last anyway. If this is, this is as good as it gets, we're bound to be disappointed. The millennial kingdom is more than a good, big meeting. It is the fullness of of Jesus's leadership. The kingdom of God will be openly manifest worldwide, affecting every sphere of influence. Now, the kingdom of God is everywhere now, and it influences many things now. But there's a whole lot going on around the earth without consulting Jesus. Can you imagine seeing Jesus-led public policies? Perhaps some of the leaders of the nations are sitting around writing policies and Jesus leans over, points to one paragraph and said, yeah, I think I'd change that. You get some pretty good policy that way. Can you imagine Jesus-led social justice? Right now, what we have is a lot of amoral justice movements that want things to be better, but they don't have any standard. What if Jesus were working for social justice? What if Jesus impacted education or technology? The end game for us is the millennial kingdom where he rules and reigns in all facets of earth and it is initiated by the return of Jesus to earth. 1 Corinthians 15.52 says in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, 
for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. If you're like me, you grew up on the songs of Fanny Crosby. She was a prolific hymn writer in the late 1800s. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. Her songs were very popular in the Methodist movement, not the United Methodists that you know now, but the OG Methodists and the holiness churches that sprung out of that, the Wesleyans, the Pentecostals. If you ever walked an aisle at a camp meeting, you probably have sung a Fanny Crosby song at some point. She wrote songs like Rescue the Perishing and Jesus is Calling You Home. And we used to sing the song, Changed in the Twinkling of an Eye, The Trumpet Shall Sound, The Dead Shall Be Raised, Changed in the Twinkling of an Eye. But we never asked, then what? Like, we, we never figured out what happened after that. The next verse in 1 Corinthians 15.53 says, For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. What is the connection here? Why not discard our physical bodies and move to some great ethereal beyond? Because that final trumpet that blows not only signifies the rapture, it signifies that there's a new sheriff in town, a new leader on the face of the earth. And Paul wrote, clothe yourself with immortality, but be ready. Revelation eleven fifteen describes it. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. It's the same trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The return of Jesus and the rapture shifts the earth from this age with all of its failings and all of its corruption, all of its disappointment with that age, to a perfect leader. Revelation 19, 15-16 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Zechariah 14, 9 says, The Lord shall be king over all the earth. Now, I eagerly look forward to the rapture, but we've got to move beyond a hope of rescue to a hope of participating in dominion over the earth under Jesus, our King. The rapture is not your life raft. It is the arrival of an invading vessel, and we are invited to get on. Daniel saw this kingdom in a vision in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So Daniel sees Jesus. He, Daniel doesn't know Jesus. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. But he said, I saw in heaven one that came like the son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, or he came to God. And he was presented before him. And to him, meaning Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This millennial kingdom that is coming, it is not ethereal. It is real. It is physical. If supernatural is a word that throws you off, consider it super real. You say, Randy, this sounds like Narnia, because reality is more like Narnia than what we have been conditioned to believe. The millennial kingdom is the ultimate theme of the end times. We've made it just about a rapture, and I believe in a rapture, but we've made it about crossing over to some unimaginable other place. It is not that. It is about Jesus ruling the earth. Jesus will sit on a throne as a king and rule 
over all other kings. Think of the variety of leaders that we have across the scope of the world sitting around the same table. You start at one end and you've got President Joe Biden, United States. President Vladimir Putin, Russia. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez of Spain. Kim Jong-un, General Secretary of the Workers' Party, Chairman of the Central Military Commission, and Chairman of the State of Affairs of North Korea. And as you go all the way around the table, you get to the very end where the seat is empty and there's a little placard and he's coming to sit. And all that it says on the placard is, Jesus. Psalm 72, 11 says, All nations will fall down before him and all nations will serve him. The end game that we all look for is what life will be like in that kingdom. That is winning on the scoreboard. Does that mean we abandon our efforts in the current reality? No, it's the exact opposite. Because while he will return in a moment, his government or rulership over the earth will gradually increase in that day. And the more that we do today to establish righteousness on the earth, the faster it will happen then. Scripture teaches of the progressive increase of Jesus' government in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 9-7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It says God has energy on the idea of the kingdom of Jesus in the millennium expanding. And that is a progressive expansion over the face of the earth. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as the king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. Consider the trauma that will have come to the earth in that day. Think of what is coming in the years up until the rapture. It may take decades before we see full healing in all the lands and in the governments of the earth. Many of the cities of the earth will be desolate and need of being rebuilt. Places where great damage has been done to people's psyche. The increase of his government will be continual and will know no end. Think of the work to be done in the millennial kingdom. The replacing of the people in the Antichrist worldwide government, which had been established with a new government led by Jesus. The rebuilding of food and water and electrical systems, of highways and bridges, of economic systems, of agriculture. Think of all of the work that is to be done and we get to partner with him. Now, if you're taking notes, let me encourage you to write in big block letters off to the side. I think he's a little crazy. Okay, let's just pierce that armor for a minute. You think I'm a little crazy. Hang on. Because in the millennial kingdom, the natural processes of life will continue in many ways. Jesus is coming to the earth with hands-on governmental leadership. And he will definitely use supernatural dimensions in his government, but not all of this negates natural processes. If you haven't given it much study, you probably assume that once the rapture takes place, believers go to be with Jesus and live forever, and non-believers don't. We don't like to think about it, so we'll just talk about what happens to the believers. It's not that clear. In fact, there are biblical indications that that's wrong. 
the time of the rapture will not necessarily be the time of the final judgment. Many will have died during the years preceding the rapture, but not everyone. Believers who survive immediately receive resurrected bodies, and those believers will never die. But there are people who live in this season who neither gave their heart to the Lord or their allegiance to the Antichrist. Say, Randy, where do you get that? How do you know that? Because believers are going to live forever from that point forward, yet there are passages describing this time in history that mention longevity. Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So this piece of writing is about post-natural history. It's about the next age. And yet in verse 20 of Isaiah 65, it says, No more shall there be in it an infant that lives for only a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Wait, 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 wait. If we have resurrected bodies, and this is the season of the new heaven and the new earth, who's dying at a hundred? We like to imagine the separation of the ages as clean and tidy, as if God hates the physical world and yearns for everything to be ethereal, but it is far more connected than that. In this millennial kingdom, there will be those who did not bow a knee to Jesus, but somehow managed not to swear allegiance to the Antichrist, and they will live in that season. They'll live longer, but they'll live and die. And the age that we will be living in, we will work and we will rest. We'll do many of the things we do in this lifetime surrounded by a supernatural reality. Think about that. You will work, we'll talk about that in a minute, and you will rest in the millennium. Think about the idea of a millennial nap, a nap in the presence of Jesus. That is amazing. Watching the inauguration this week, I watched as Amanda Gorman, the young poet laureate, 24 years old, incredibly striking, incredibly poised, recited a poem. She captured the nation. She really stole the show. Many were delighted with what they thought were her two references to the Broadway play Hamilton. And, of course, I'm a huge Hamilton fan, and I caught him as well. At one point, she said, history has its eyes on you. And later, she used a phrase that George Washington used in the play and often in his writings. Everyone shall sit under his own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. And Twitter exploded because people were overjoyed to hear Amanda Gorman quote the author of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was quoting George Washington, and almost nobody knew that really Amanda Gorman was quoting Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was quoting George Washington, who was quoting the prophet Micah, chapter 4, verse 4. And that it's not about Washington going home, it's about the fullness of God on earth under Jesus' leadership in the millennial kingdom. Everyone shall sit under his own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. We will work in the kingdom to come. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we will rest in a supernatural atmosphere that was not even fully recognized in the Garden of Eden. A couple of characteristics of this thousand-year reign that we read of in Scripture. 
First of all, Satan will be bound for this thousand years. You know, sometimes we wonder what could happen next. What we usually mean is, what is the enemy up to today? One day we will live life on earth and never have to ask the question, what is the enemy up to today? John's words in Revelation 20, 1 through 3, he said, I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. I love this. He names him four ways. Just so you know who we're talking about. He names the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That's a whole nother sermon. But the havoc that Satan wreaks on the earth will come to an end for that thousand years. What are CNN, Fox News, and the Washington Post going to do? We were joking in our house the other day about starting our own news network that produced only good news. Do you ever get just tired of the news? Because it's just, you know, they call it doom scrolling. They just thumb through Twitter and see everything going wrong. During the Millennial Kingdom, all networks will produce only good news because the enemy will be bound. Another thing that will happen is worldwide justice. People often say, you know, that there is no justice. And I always want to ask where they're basing their perspective on, because right now on earth, justice differs greatly from place to place. The United States has injustice in some ways, and yet there is a rule of law and there is some element of justice that does not exist in other places. One of my dearest friends in life, who's gone on to be with the Lord, Derek Laux, traveled to the Ukraine to adopt three sons. And like many Ukrainian adoptions, the boys had severe physical problems. One was near death. They were really not sure if he was going to be able to make the trip back to the United States or not. In the last court hearing, before Derek was to return with the boys, the Ukrainian judge said through an interpreter, how do we know you Americans aren't just bringing these kids to the United States to harvest their organs? Derek was beside himself. He was exhausted. He'd been there longer than he thought he'd have to be. He'd spent so much money, and now he was being accused of harvesting organs. He told his interpreter, tell him that if I were harvesting organs, I would have chosen different kids because these three don't have a working set of organs between them. Wisely, his interpreter said, uh, that's not what he's planning, Your Honor. Then the interpreter whispered, he wants a bribe. I remember Derek telling me that in that moment, he felt more alone than he'd ever felt in his life. He didn't trust the judge. He really didn't trust the interpreter, who he had just met. And all of this was terribly unjust. Derek went to the restroom and put $200 under the bathroom floor mat. The judge took a bathroom break, came back and signed the paperwork. That's injustice. And it happens all over the world. Right now, justice is not spread evenly. But Isaiah 42.1 speaks of the kingdom to come, and it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And for the first time in history, justice will be spread and applied worldwide. In the millennial kingdom, Satan will be bound, justice will be worldwide, and we will experience fullness of joy, or what I call Joy without caveats. 
We experience joy in this age, but often it is joy with the understanding that we're going to pay for it later. You enjoy a vacation, but you know good and well there's going to be a lot of work to be done when you get home. It's joy with a caveat. Garrison Keillor, long-running host of NPR's Prairie Home Companion, used to describe Norwegians as saying they were people who could not lay back in the tall green grass and enjoy the clouds floating overhead. But they had to get up, they had to mow the grass, make it sharp and uncomfortable, then perhaps they could feel good about laying down. Joy with caveats. Even if you're not Norwegian, you probably over the years have struggled to encounter joy without some sort of caveat or some sort of gnawing idea that I'm going to pay for this. The Bible paints a picture of the fullness of joy that will be available for us in the age to come. It says in Isaiah 12, 3 and 4, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people and proclaim that his name is exalted. We will experience joy and sit around telling one another what God has done and it will serve to thrill our hearts and there will be no idea of paying for it later. Joy unspeakable. This millennial kingdom has always been God's endgame. He purposefully created the universe in two distinct realms. Heaven, speaking of the supernatural spirit realm where his power and presence are manifest. And then earth, speaking of the physical realm where human processes and emotions and physical sensations reach their full expression. Just because these two realms were distinct, it does not mean God intends to keep them distinct. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that God's plan was in the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. God's purpose has always been for his people to live together with him in this way. And this idea of a millennial kingdom is the interpretive key to understanding the end times. Without this foundational message, disappointment is inevitable. Without realizing that there is not just more to this life, but more than this life, we are forever disappointed because we can't find hope where God didn't put it. The earthly realm requires the saints have a resurrected body to fully relate to the kingdom to come, and we receive that. So why does this matter? Like, what? who? Randy, it's interesting, but does it matter? Yes, let me explain why. Two reasons it matters. It matters because Jesus shares his power and authority with us as co-heirs. In his visions, John saw Jesus as the ruler over two sets of kings, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. It says, Jesus, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us. And then in 6, it says, and he has made us kings and priests to God the Father. He saw governmental kings who have this conventional governmental role. And then he saw resurrected saints who were made kings that operate by virtue of their priesthood. And each of those kings will have specific spheres of influence and dominion, but they're going to work closely together. There will be no separation of church and state. You know, we have separation of church and state now, and it does not work well, although if we melded them together, it wouldn't work well right now either, because again, we're not under perfect leadership. But on that day, it's going to work. As kings... The saints will rule or reign with real responsibility and real authority. 1 Corinthians 6.2 tells us we're going to judge angels 
and men. That will be the work that we do as we rule and reign with Jesus. We'll be given the authority to be judges over spiritual cases and the effects of angels and men. So it matters because we are joint heirs with him and he's going to rule and reign with us. It also matters because our life in this reality affects our authority in that reality. What we do now and how we live now affects how we live then. Jesus motivated his followers by indicating that their role in the kingdom to come hinged greatly on their life on this earth, in this age. There's a story in the book of Matthew where Jesus is talking to Peter, and Peter points out, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. Matthew 19, 27. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Just a little sidebar here. When talking with Jesus, never make a real point of your sacrifice, okay? Jesus would have been justified in saying, well, Peter, you did have a fishing boat. There's some indication from the stories that you weren't very good at it, but I understand you made some big sacrifices. But he didn't say that. Jesus, being Christ, saw the bigger picture. And in verse 28, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He said, Peter, there is coming a kingdom where you will rule with me. And it wasn't limited to just the apostles or the super spiritual people. Jesus gave one of the greatest promises about the end of the age, to one of the most carnal churches in the first century. Jesus motivated the church of Laodicea to resist compromise and lethargy by offering them a place of government in the millennial kingdom. He said to that church that he had called out for being lukewarm in Revelation chapter 3, in verse 21, he said, but to the one who conquers, if you guys can get your act together... I will grant him to sit with me on the thrones as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He said, you don't have to be one of the apostles to get in on this deal. In fact, you can be a lukewarm Christian right now and you can make the adjustments in your life to rule and reign in the age to come. Here's the second reason that it matters. Your walk with Jesus in this life determines the greatness of your work with Jesus in the next Let me say that again, because some of you are so fair-minded that you think that once we go to be with Jesus, everyone should get the same deal. But we don't. Your walk with Jesus in this life determines the greatness of your work with Jesus in the next. He measures this in a number of respects. But here's the beauty of these respects that he measures it in. Anybody can be great at these. He measures it by nature of faithfulness. Matthew 25, 23, one of many stories Jesus told about faithfulness, and he said in a parable, the Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we want to hear at the end of our life? Well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because Jesus promised, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Faithful stewardship is in the realm of the doable of every person listening to this podcast. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be talented. 
You don't have to be rich. You can wake up tomorrow, decide to do it, and even if you're only faithful over what you have, it matters in eternity because God knows you can't be faithful over what you don't have. Your faithful attention to the things that he has put in front of you, to taking care of your family, to showing up on time, to working hard, your faithfulness matters in eternity. He will say, you've been faithful over a few small things. I will make you faithful over many things. Some people have made that a business principle, and I think there is an element of that that does happen in business or in this life, but face it, millions of people are faithful every day of their lives, and their situation never changes on this side of the return of Jesus. In the age to come, we're all going to be working for them. Faithfulness matters. The other thing, meekness. Meekness, that word that not just rhymes, but we actually think is confused with weakness of not defending ourselves or not taking offense when there could be offense to be taken, but remaining meek. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said to those that were gathered around him, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some of you have heard that and you've thought, who wants the earth? Like this mess that we have, you want to inherit this? This is like receiving the gift of a Shetland pony with a digestive issue. Like, who wants this? That's not the earth he's talking about. He's talking about the age to come and how the meek and the faithful will rule in that age in a way that those who are unfaithful and full of pride will not. Will they be saved? Yes, I believe you can be unfaithful and you can be full of pride and you can struggle to the finish line by the grace of God. And when you get there, what is waiting? I want to be faithful. I want to be meek. And here's the crazy thing. We can practice this every day. We really can. I call it millennial practice. When we're out on the interstate and we get cut off, how do we respond? Do we just let it go? Or do we grumble at that guy? Because we should have had the right to that lane. It's a millennium practice. When somebody demands something of us that they don't deliver to us, they ask of something that they never do for us, it's a millennial practice. When we don't get the recognition that we think we deserve or we even do deserve, how do we respond? Is it faithfulness and meekness or do we blow up and we defend ourselves? It's millennium practice. Our days of greatness lie ahead. Maybe not even in this earth, but they lie in that kingdom. Even Jesus had more promises in the Old Testament about the age to come than he did his three years of ministry. Even Jesus lived for that age. What more should we? Father, I pray that everyone listening to this podcast would take a moment and set their sights on the age to come and say, how can I live my life in this season so that I can rule and reign with you in that season? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the third cup of coffee, listening to a little bald man rant in his basement on a cold Sunday night. Have a great week.